Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Here tonight, please welcome Andrea Portes. Wow. Oh my goodness. This is so exciting. I, uh, it's very odd. I feel looking, first of all, I'm so grateful that everyone came out in the rain in LA, which is, um, but it's odd looking out. I really feel like, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. There's just so many people from different times of my life here. I guess that's what you get when you've been in LA since 1990. Um, so before I start reading, I just thought that um, I talk a little bit about the book and why I wrote it because a few people have been sort of like, "Why did you write this depraved work?" And um, it it was basically it's based on a, a story. I was on an airplane and the two women in front of me started talking about this this event that happened in Michigan, and I became sort of obsessed and I went home and I googled it and and I became more obsessed and so this book is actually based on a true story I'm going to move this water because I have images of me uh, bumping it off um, so that's sort of it but what I did is I took the I took the characters and I just sort of ran with that. So the characters in the book, the incidents in the book are true, but the characters in it are completely made out of whole cloth. So let's just start with the prologue. This is, if someone in the room is in the film business, they would call this the page two. So we'll start with this, the prologue. It would be lily white, the snow, on a strange sort of day where the earth and the sky were the same shade of gray. How funny, he thought later, that in this moment the thought tumbling through his head had been annoyance with his wife for wasting so much money on those stupid dolls. A doll collection, collectibles. He told his friend he would eat his face off if any of those fucking things were ever worth millions someday or gonna be worth a fortune as his wife pled, pondered, prayed. It was the last thought he would have before he would become forever the snowplower, or better yet, the snowplower who found her. Make these branches cold, grabbing down from the sky. What are they eager to clutch? Make these snow prints hurried and hurried and rushed. What are they eager to hush? There he goes following them. Now it's a path, a scurry, a brush. 
Probably nothing, but might as well, into the woods and the grabby-grabby trees, greedily waiting to pluck. A doll collection, what a hoot. How gaping and stupid, degrading it was to think of that time. What, now twenty years ago, when he had looked into his bride's eyes, under that veil, on that altar, and said the words, I do. If only he'd known about the doll collection, just one doll, things might have been different. Just one doll is what's there in the snow and the clutter and the shutter of light. Stab, stab, stab through the trees. Just one doll, there it is. But there are porcelain fingers and ceramic toes and glass twinkly eyes unblinking. Unblinking. It is, in fact, a girl. Not a doll at all. So we're going to skip forward to Dotsy. Uh, the uh, mom of the woman that was just in the snow, um, and the guy who broke her heart in the 40s. Edward, for years after that, the name alone could make her gulp and grab the nearest cocktail. Edward, tall and too thin and from a good family. Edward, from Boston, who'd seen it all. Edward, who was mad about his stop-traffic girl from Odessa. His half-yokel, half-movie star. He couldn't stop thinking about fucking too much, aching for. Oh, Lord, let me just spend the rest of my days fucking this girl I love more than I love myself. Which is not much, now that I think about it. He blindsided her when he broke it off. He took his hand and reached into her chest and pulled out everything a girl from Odessa, Texas can hold. Why did he do it? How could he have done it? Was it his family? Was it him? Was it someone else? Was it simply being too much in love or was he not actually too much in love? Was he not in love at all? Was she just a fucking fool? These were the questions that ran through her head, maddening over and over and over again, kicking her arms out to the nearest glass, throwing her feet out one in front of the other to the nearest bar. You see, I'm pretty. You see, I can still stop a room. And she could. Whether at the Downbeat Club or the Onyx or the Three Deuces, she was not less, no, no, even more fetching now. There was a sort of melancholy you wanted to shake out of her, a name you wanted to kiss off her lips, and she would go every night just as she'd gone before. She didn't give herself one night to mourn he who she would not speak of. Not one night. Dress, check. Heels, check. Stockings, check. Lipstick, check. Like an army routine, this list, this habit, this was the only thing holding her up. If she hadn't had the checklist and the bar and the eight million suitors, she would not have made it through. Still, at the end of the night alone, having flirted and smiled or even kissed, she would stare in the mirror, those sweetheart lips frozen, that alabaster arm shaking, 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 and watch as that mascara came down in little pieces, droplets, streams. And she would stay frozen watching her real self, her alone self, what she'd become after Edward. And what she'd become was becoming something different fast. The admirers were still there, yes, thank God, but inside the flasks, the shaking, hidden bottles under the cupboard, night panics, her thoughts racing, how easy it would be to break this bottle and take that sharp edge and put it in my neck, my wrist, my gut. Oh, fuck this body, fuck this heart, why did he do it? And so as the nights were getting longer and slurrier and more careless, dangerous, slapdash nights with seedier mornings, it wasn't a difficult decision to make when Lieutenant Colonel Charles Krauss came waltzing through the door of Clark Monroe's uptown house, went up to the drop-dead girl at the bar, 
a girl with pitch black hair and ghost skin and said, I'm going to marry you and take you back with me to Michigan. She laughed at the arrogance. They all did. But looking into his sky blue eyes and blonde crew cut hair, weighing the odds of her ending up with her throat slit on the street against those ice blue eyes and a place called home with a front porch swing and a man who loved her, she knew. She said to herself under her lips, yes. Whoa. <laughs> okay, so this is, uh, we're going to go back to that a little bit. We're going we're gonna to close that beat. Okay. Again, she wondered what had become of him. We're, we're still on Dotsie and Edward. Again, she wondered what had become of him. Where had he fallen? Maybe he was still in New York, or maybe Paris, London, knowing him. He could not stay put long, fancied himself a world traveler, coming back from Paris, Rome, Venice. He'd put a magnet on his refrigerator, a different magnet, bought on a lark, but a specific lark from a silly, funny gift shop. These Edward would bring home and place lovingly on his fridge in his kicky, impress-you apartment on Fifth Avenue. This magnet fridge of trinkets, a cocktail party conversation piece, a few witticisms in the kitchen fetching ice, a way of saying, I've been farther than you, I've been around the world, and I will leave you. Thinking about those days, weeks, months after he'd slaughtered her in the heart, Dotsie was relieved, grateful to feel nothing. If I can only feel nothing for the rest of my life, I'll be lucky. Knowing now, thinking it over, what a fool she'd been. A fool for love, as they say. Of all the captains of industry, steel magnets, robber baron's son, war profiteers, of all the bigwigs, post-war moguls and masters of the universe, she'd chosen this one, this losing proposition, this bon vivant, this dilettante, this Edward. If she'd only thought it out, she'd be in a penthouse overlooking the park, not some ranch house in Muskegon, Michigan. But she hadn't thought it out, had she? It had simply run its course. Still, it cut her in two. She'd been so stupid to think, to it, to think it, to fall for him. She should have seen the signs. For instance, what did he do exactly? Well, nothing. He was one of the great nothing-doers of New York, a long-held tradition, one to uphold, and he upheld it, martini in hand. What was he really? A dandy, an esthete, feckless as the waves lapping the east egg sound. Christ, she'd never even seen him eat a steak. No, the signs were all there, right from the start. But had she heeded them? No, sir, she let herself fall straight in love with this nothing man, this sometime vegetarian, this Hudson scarecrow, this New York man, a breed grown nowhere else in America. Witty in conversation, always. Articulate, check. Well-dressed, well, that goes without saying. On the most polite side of politics, but ask him in private, he's quite progressive. Yes, another heartless revolutionary. So kind to those he's never met and cruel to those who loved him. She hated him. But she'd heard something, something not entirely insubstantial from her girlfriends back at Sardi's. He'd not come to much. He never managed to get the airplane off the ground, so to speak. They said to her, disguised delight, he's gotten older, you wouldn't recognize him, Dots. And Dotsie would pretend this was never care news, weather news, sports team news. And the other thing, Dots, you'll never believe it, he asked about you, all the girls, Ethel, Irene, Rita, too, in whispers late night, asked about you and your husband, how could you leave? Dotsie, stiffing up now, baby cooing up from her basket, little basket on the table, swaddled in peak, a love bug, a snug little bean, 
Dotsie, he gets shit-faced and asked about you. I swear you wouldn't recognize him. He's lost it. Whatever it was, I swear he's lost it. And Dorothy Krauss, wishing she were the kind of person who could transcend idle gossip, wishing she were the angel face she knew she was supposed to be, couldn't help upon putting down the receiver, click, looking down at her pink baby toe head swaddled and big-eyed and pudgy, couldn't help but think a selfish little greedy, greedy thought, a thought she couldn't allow herself, a slaying thought. Ha! I won. Okay, so this is just a little thing when they decide to exhume the body 25 years later of our heroine. The white laid out over the sloping hill, the sun just above the horizon in yellow glow glare, never gold on a freeze black tree silent morning like this. Fifteen below windchill and tombstone sticking out the milk sprawl ground, sporadic, no good here. As ran on the plots as the snow around him, some trodden, lots of visitors, some bare as an ice rink, no visitors, long dead. What did you make of it? Does it matter now? What did you collect? Anything good? Is it with you now? Some buried in great grand family orchestrations with giant granite obelisks, Fisher, Macon, Collins. We were in it together, we were a family, we meant something once. Some, just the two of them, husband and wife, we stayed true. We fall and rise as one. Then also the lone gravestones with nothing around. No prints, nothing but the scraped black trees and the shadows drawing long in rectangles for companionship. What did it mean, any of it? What did I do wrong to end up alone and snowprintless here? Or do we all end up alone, really? Then the angel field near the gates reserved for toddlers, infants, and children. The ground crying too, don't fill me. Don't fill me with that. And all beneath the pale oatmeal sky with streaks of silver, streams of yellow-white strands masking sunrise, wake up! But no one will wake up here, a stubborn lot. The granite making stretch square shadows down the snowfield, limitless silence. A thousand questions to each stone square. No answer. So this is Shauna, um, Shauna Boggs. And this is, uh, I guess you could call it a date. Before January 1976, blah, winter blank canvas days, she tried not to think about it. What was the point? Nobody had to know about it, about those things she did. It wasn't like anyone knew, not even Miss Goody Two-Shoes. If no one knew, it didn't happen, right? She could have called this guy a client, I guess. Shauna didn't like to. No, they weren't clients. They were friends. Friends she met at Dreamers. Friends she met at the Jewel Box. Friends she met at Captain Jack's. Tall friends, short friends, old friends, older friends, balding friends, rich friends, married friends, lonely friends, just friends, only friends. Meeting them, sometimes at home, or if they were married, the Baymont Inn off Harvey Road, the Howard Johnson on 28th, the one with the Holly's backdoor bar and grill. One guy, a dentist, wanted her to meet him at his office on the weekend, a Saturday appointment, four o'clock. He told her over the phone to get ready. He had a big one. I get it, act impressed. 
The dentist's office is steady and beige and putty. Not too many kids' posters around. She thought there'd be kids' things everywhere when she pictured it. She thought she'd be looking up at a happy tooth cartoon declaring his passion, don't forget to floss. But now, no jolly tooth advice here, only putty-colored tile, putty-colored counters, taupe reclining chairs. Outside, the sky in blotches, little bits of leaves smashed in the slow, studge, slow snow sledge ground. She'd have to peel them off her boot. Shauna had an outfit she liked to wear to these little appointments. She'd seen it in body and Bonnie and Clyde last year, a full wool skirt and brown-black check, a maroon pullover angora, and the kicker, a pair of knee-high black suede boots, a present from Little Miss Perfect. A Faye Dunaway, shoot them up, get up. Sometimes she'd even wear a hat, a kind of berry wool beret tilted slightly to the side, a costume. A costume for a part she was playing, and this was a part, no question, this was not her. She was nowhere to be found. This was her character. In this Heather Wool outlaw outfit, her character doing these things, walking up the steps, knocking on the glass frosted doors, waiting outside the 4 p.m. drizzle, the last light fading through the trees. This was her character, pretending to be pleasantly surprised to meet the new friend, the dentist, a thin hair and khakis, as memorable as cement. Her character, smiling, demure, and stepping inside his empty, bland beige office, walking down the hallways, being led into a room with a dentist chair reclined at the ready. She wondered if it had been left that way or had he adjusted it back. This was her character, leaning back in the dentist chair, pulling up her plaid wool skirt, spreading her boots apart, and looking like all this was the best thing in the world ever. Best kept secret, best Saturday afternoon, most wanted kiss. This was her character, letting him kiss her, letting him grope her, letting him remark stupid guy words about his too big dick, his monster cock. Yeah, right, it was just average, but that's not part of the scene. Those lines aren't written here. This was her character, making those noises, letting him gasp and goop and spasm, this stupid-faced dentist, all over, and lay on top and get up and put everything back together and say some stupid thing, some icebreaker non-joke, and laugh an embarrassed laugh and hand her 620s. This was her character, taking the 620s, counting them out and looking up at the cement-faced nothing-man dentist, telling him, I thought we'd said 200. That's what we talked about on the phone. This was her character, freezing her face in a pleasant, never-there smile and taking the 620s after the dentist, buttoning up his khakis, tucked in his shirt and said, that's all I have. And anyways, I thought you'd be better looking. I'm so sorry. Okay. <laughs> all right. So this is the same character, Shauna. Now she's in love. Now, ever since Jeff, now that she had Jeff, now that she had to keep Jeff, her very heart and soul a sudden frenzy, a panic passion, almost too much for her paced body, ceaseless, a pacing, ranting, pining, coursing through her head, her heart the deepest bottom of her belly between her legs. All she is, all she ever was, began and ended with him. No more was she the sad little case, the left for dead dad's daughter, the welfare girl, the secret child bride of her father, the wronged piece of meat, away from him, reaching for him, always reaching for him, the space never close enough, jealous of anything near him, 
jealous of the buttons on his shirt, jealous of the cigarette that gets to be between his lips, jealous of his shirt sleeves, jealous of his pockets, jealous of the sheets underneath his chest, jealous of his pillow, lucky, lucky pillow, and when he sighs his last sigh and grins his last grin, she'll be jealous of the box he's buried in. So this is uh, Dotsy, and this is the last thing I'll read. This is the mother of the woman who was dead. There beside the lake, two black spindle trees, one outstretched upward, reaching high into the infinite dusk, the other crumpled in on itself, crying into its belly, hobbled. And there on the bench between, a raven woman, Dotsy Kraus an almost painter with memories and brushstrokes of the lindy hop at the three deuces, of a sweltering July spent in Cape Cod, of a Wedgwood locket found and lost, each brushstroke a pulse, the shock of it a kind of vista disappearing into the horizon. Once it was there, then smaller and smaller, then minuscule, then a pinprick, then nothing. Looking out across the pitch gloam water as fixed as glass, Dorothy Krauss had the feeling of being watched, and for a moment above her as she peered over into the gloom glass lake, that still ice Michigan never light water she thought she saw, but now how could she? A rustle of light, a ghost figure, a tentative quiver, and a whisper came quick almost from the trees. Take me back gently into the night sky. I will wait for you. And Dotsy, hearing her daughter's voice, turns in pieces to the green pine trees, searching desperate in grasps and shadows through the elm, through the elder, through the oaks, and then realizing, yes, of course, there was no one there and never would be again. So that's it, and now I'm going to open it up for questions. Somebody ask something light, please. <laughs> I had to write a whole YA to get over writing this book, actually. <laughs> yes. No, I haven't. I don't actually understand the form very well, so I haven't. But Oh, thank you. I think I need to have like a, a train track to go on to know, you know what I mean? Like I need just the structure of a novel, which is not the structure of a screenplay, obviously, but the, you know, I have to have something to, otherwise I just, it's like, it's almost too much freedom in a way. You know what I mean? Anyone else? Yeah. Well, it was nice because the story, uh, the story was, the structure of the story was already there. I knew exactly what happened. And I, I kind of um, just would write a, a, a chapter where I would just go into someone's head and then I would think, okay, well, what do we, what do we need to see next? Like, what would I want, what will keep me engaged to um, see the next thing? And sort of, I would sort of go back to that. I mean, I knew that I wanted a five-act structure. I mean, there's just a part of me that always wants to, to do that, but um, 
because I knew what would happen, because it followed a real story, it was sort of like I could cheat a little bit. I think if I was making up the story, I couldn't have such a wonky structure because <laughs> I would just get lost, sort of the same thing with the poetry. Anyone else? Please ask questions, seriously. Well, there's a gentleman back there who knows well, because um, I, my first book uh, was this uh, novel called Hick. And um, someone in this room optioned that book, and we turned it into a movie. And it was very exciting. And um, actually, the, that has just happened for this book. So it's all very exciting. But I can't say anything about it yet. Very excited though. Okay, I mean, please ask questions, anyone. Ask anything. <laughs> Seriously. Can you talk more about the writing of the book? The nice thing was I was pregnant. So I really didn't have much to do. Um, because, you know, you don't really exactly feel like doing much when you're pregnant. So I was basically just kind of laying around. And, um, and, I, and I wrote this book out longhand, which if I'm writing a screenplay or YA, I would write on the computer. But if I'm writing literary fiction, I write longhand. And um, so I, would, I just had these sort of three books that I just kind of filled out with these scribbles. Um, and, you know, basically it was just like I would get to the end of one of the, the chapters and I would think, okay, well, what do I have to do next? Sometimes I would do three chapters in a row, but I would always sort of go back to the, first, to the last paragraph of the chapter before I started to sort of get into this weird world of these people and their brains, hopefully. Anyone else? Please? Yes? Well, they are real characters. I mean, in the in the real story, there's there's the girl. Her name isn't Beth, but the the one who was murdered, who sang in the in the church choir. And then there's um, her mom and her parents. Who, when I when I researched them, I became really sort of um, moved by them because this the woman, the woman of the murdered girl. Uh, she came out, the one that Dotsie is based on, she came out of the courthouse after the verdict and she was almost crying and she was saying, I just, I wish I could forgive them. I'm trying as hard as I can to forgive them. And that was, you know, you always see these people and these horrible things happen and they're just full of vengeance and hatred. And this woman, her, her problem and the thing that was really upsetting her was that she couldn't forgive the people who'd murdered her daughter and I just found that to be so moving and that that such a horrible thing had happened to her daughter but that she had had met it with such grace and such dignity and and such kindness I I it just kind of blew me away no because I made up I made everyone up. I mean, basically, I moved it to a different city, and I made the characters up. Like, there's the the woman Shauna Boggs, who was this woman's best friend. She's there's they're not they're not anything like the characters. Partially because I sort of felt like I wanted to leave everybody alone after this great tragedy. It's public domain. It's, it was a public event. Thank you. <laughs> My lawyer is here tonight.
<laughs> um, okay, someone else had a question. I'm not going to let. Oh, are you going to? Yeah. How, how do you, uh, at the end of the day, you have this, this really heavy material, this darkness in it, and yet, Well, I think anyone in the room that's been pregnant knows how dark you can get when you're pregnant. Um, I mean, it's like not, you know, some parts of it are very happy and blissful, and some parts of it you want to, like, kill everyone you've ever seen. But, um, <laughs> right? Am I right, lady? I don't know. Um, so, so um, but I think that, you know, part of it is just, you know, part, with this book, part of it was exercising something. I mean, the story just haunted me so much that I really felt like I had to just get it out or somehow explain it to myself what had happened and why had it happened. So, in a sense, it was me sort of trying to find truth here and 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 get back to the light of um, because when I heard this story I mean I, I it was traumatizing I, I really couldn't wrap my head around it I mean I was crying buckets when like the, the whole thing was revealed to me and so this this whole book in a way was a way of exercising that and um, and then I had to write a YA after it to, to sort of get it off me and, and um, but now it's here and look you know today when I was trying to go through and figure out what I was going to read I was thinking Jesus this is dark you know but I think that it was sort of like I had to go to that dark place in a way to figure out what had happened yes Um, okay, so when the nice thing about w writing in notebooks and then you have to you know transfer it obviously to the computer is there's kind of a built-in editing process there. But at the end of that, it's it's really like you're just too close to it. You really have no idea what it is. So um, luckily, I sent it out to a few people, some of whom are in this room, and then I got my editor at Softskull is also in this room and he did an amazing job of sort of cutting through you know what 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 do we not need here what do we need here and you know it's just at a at a certain point as a writer you know you really are lucky to have a good editor who can um see what you're missing and also see where you've gone a little bit too far and and um I feel like really like blessed that I had someone that I could have that faith in and and I feel like the book is a zillion times better for his input yes so um it just has to happen in the morning like I have to just kind of wake up and write before I turn on the computer before any before I get any text messages before there's anything having to do with social media because that stuff I mean I'm I must be weak or something because that stuff just gets me out for the entire day I mean I can't I have to just be in that little world but then you know around noon or one I I'm I'm sick of myself and I'm sick of the story and I'm sick of everything and I think it's garbage and I just kind of throw it away or put it in a drawer and then I go out and you know, talk to my friends on the computer. <laughs>
Okay, yes? When you're writing something that doesn't already have a story, when you're coming up with it on your own, um, where, do you, where does the plot come in and where, where are the characters? I mean, what do you write from first and, and then when does the other really start coming in? Um, okay, so with both Hick and the book that's coming out, I have a book coming out in the fall called Anatomy of a Misfit. And in both of those books, the protagonist, which is a girl, she's in one she's 13 and the other she's 17, um, the story sort of just comes from her. I know where I'm going with the story, but she's sort of driving it. So if I, let's say, I need something that's like a quiet, contemplative moment. I can just kind of go into something from her, something from her history. Um, it's more difficult, obviously, with a story that doesn't have that structure. There's a, a, a literary fiction that I'm working on now about the sort of oil boom in North Dakota. And I'm just kind of fascinated with it because there's this thing that's sort of like giant or days of heaven happening in North Dakota and I'm obsessed with it. So I'm sort of piecing together that story and um, just trying to find those characters. But I know kind of where I'm going and, and I, I do a lot of stealing. You know, like I think, oh, well, I really liked this thing in that movie and then this thing from that book. And what if you did this and this and this? And that could be your act one, act two, act, your act three. And then, you know, I sort of get the, the loose, the sort of broad strokes. And then I go in there and then a lot of times the characters are like, no, I don't want to do that. That's ridiculous. How obvious. And then I have to do something else. But I love it when they do that because then I sort of realize, oh, well, you've really got a character now because he's rebelling against the dumb idea you had. <laughs> um, anybody else please say, please, someone else? Uh, we all see how great your mind works with these characters. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but, but you're amazing. Are you ever thinking of doing a memoir or a creative nonfiction? I I don't know. I mean, I I'm there's so many things I'm embarrassed about, and there are so many. There's I I mean, maybe I would. I feel like I've I've got hopefully a lot longer to go before I would do a memoir. But you know, I'm fascinated when other people write their memoirs. So. You know, but uh, for me, it's like I need a little bit of a cushion of fiction so I can make people a little more interesting or hide. You know, like in some cases, some people are are based on on reality. And in my next book, I'm not happy. I'm worried because I feel like there are going to be people coming up to me saying, um, "Was that me?" <laughs> Anyone else? Yes. Oh yeah, let's do the raffle. Does everyone have tickets? All you need to do to get a ticket is raise your hand. It's, there we go. Yeah, so just go to the register and get one. You get uh, two if you buy the book, actually. Ooh. So, we'll do one right now because we have two raffles. So um, <laughs> you have uh, a blue bag with tons of stuff in it. Oh, are we ready? Does everyone? Well, let's wait till everyone has their tickets. <laughs> well, pull it out. Pull out your tickets. Okay. I'm gonna wait till Jennifer gets. Uh, also, do want to remind you uh, to tweet at Andrew Cortez. All right, at Skylight Books. Hashtag Skylight Books. Love that stuff. Okay. Our, our self-esteem rises as a staff. I was on the Twitter thing right now, checking it out to make sure. So, you know, just now. So, um, 
Uh, also, since we're waiting, we want to remind you that we do have cupcakes up here. Pink cupcakes. All right. There's still lots of brie. All right. <laughs> and some wine. Okay. All right. Should we do one? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Mm, the excitement is killing everyone, I can tell. <laughs> okay. So, if you take out your ticket, does anyone have a... Oh. You have a second chance. You got a second There's chance. a second chance. Okay. 691084. Is it you? All right. Look at you, lady. Nice. <laughs> you. Oh. Okay. Oh. You, want to, you want to verify that? No, that's all right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're going okay. to, uh, we'll sign, we'll sign a few books, and then we'll come back and we'll do another raffle. Okay? That's all right. That sounds great. Yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.